The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, Our Constitution, Our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I'm your host, Ron Kern, and thanks so much for tuning in to episode 13, The Occupation of Boston and the First American Death of the Revolution. Well, here we are, finally discussing the occupation of Boston, not to be confused with the siege of Boston. There is lots and lots to cover in this show, and I dug deep and had a couple squirrel moments to bring you some insight and details that are often overlooked or not even spoken about. So, I want to jump right in. From our last show, Governor Francis Bernard had come to the conclusion that British troops were needed in Boston, but did not want to be the one responsible for inviting them. Now, the upper house of the Colonial Assembly also refused to join him in requesting more troops. And he was quiet publicly about wanting more troops, but he did hint at it uh, at any chance he got. Now, General Gage, who was the British military commander for North America, was quite frustrated with Bernard, and, and you can tell that when Gage wrote, Quash this spirit at a blow without too much regard to the expense, and it will prove economy in the end. While Bernard was leery on what to do next and not being direct and firm on his concern and request, the government in London said, hey, I'm ordering more troops, and they sent more troops to Boston. On September 28, 1768, eight British warships sailed into Boston Harbor, and they joined the six that were already anchored there. The following evening, the ships launched skyrockets, which illuminated the sky, and then the crews sang Yankee Doodle, which was intended as a taunt to the provincial Bostonians. Now, here's my first squirrel moment right out of the chute. Uh, that song, like you, as a child, I, I sang that nursery rhyme, and I heard the song Yankee Doodle. But interestingly enough, I found it being sung in pinnacle moments during the American Revolution. It was written before the American Revolution and even before the French and Indian War, or some call it the Seven Years' War. In British conversation, the term Yankee Doodle Dandy implied unsophisticated misappropriation of upper-class fashion as though simply sticking a feather in one's cap would transform the wearer into a noble. Basically, it wasn't, it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> All right, back on track. Around noon the next day, several units debarked at Long Wharf, including the 14th and 29th regiments. In addition to the line of redcoats, each company of the 29th had an Afro-Caribbean drummer dressed in a yellow coat with red lapels and trim. Parading past the townhouse, the 29th Regiment set up camp on Boston Common. The troops' presence did not sit well with anybody, and uh, it led to riots, protests, and, and of course even some street fights. We sometimes picture the British soldiers being 
adults and brave and strong and they're wealthy, but they're here just to serve the king. Sometimes they're portrayed like that. But in fact, most of them were very young and they were very poor. And when they landed here, they or in Boston, they saw opportunities in Massachusetts and the countryside that they have never even imagined. So during the first two weeks of them arriving, more than 40 soldiers deserted. That's a lot. And due to these defections, the response was, I think, pretty shocking. Um, remember during our last episode, I mentioned that England liked to exhibit a show of force and had the go big or go home mentality? When the American Customs Group had requested some support from England, well, they arrived with large ships and one even carrying 50 guns. All of this was discussed in our last episode, but this shows that they continued to try and make large impacts by doing big and large things. On October 31st, regiments were gathered on the common to witness the execution by firing squad of Private Richard Ames for desertion. A guard was posted at the Boston Neck, which basically is kind of how it describes it. It was the only way in or out of the town, and they put a soldier there to check every single person coming and going. The worst thing that you can do, or at least one of the biggest things you can do to make a point of how serious leaving the British Army was, was to execute somebody who deserted and, well, make them an example. That's exactly what happened and what Richard Ames became, that example. Having been one of, if not the first, British soldier to die in this conflict, I wanted to find out more. Sadly, however, I could really not find anything of value on Richard Ames. Even the basics. All I know is that he was a British soldier who deserted and they hung him in front of everybody and made him an example. I didn't find how old he was. I didn't determine if he had a journal or a diary or what the main reason why he left or anything at all. One of those rabbit holes that unfortunately uh, came up empty. Now, Boston at this time was really a small town. It's kind of hard to imagine today, Boston, or for that matter, any large city being small, but it was. And if you've ever been to Boston, and I have, it is so rich with historical locations and buildings that were, I mean, they're still preserved and intact. Uh, it's a great place to visit. If you haven't, I mean, really, it all started in Boston, right? So much started in Boston. It's a great, it's a great place to visit. I highly recommend it. Today, the population of Boston, including the metropolitan area, is about 5 million people. When the troops landed in Boston to restore order, was their main purpose, the city's population was almost 15,000 people. For perspective on why having troops in Boston seemed overly domineering in more ways than one, but for every three adults in Boston at the time, there was one British soldier. 25% of the city's population was soldiers. I mean, imagine that. If that took place today in Boston, there would be 1,200,000 
225,000 redcoats in the city. Take a minute and let that sink in because it's important to understand it just wasn't a few British troops causing issues and this and that and the other. It was a lot. For even a better perspective, take the population of the city you live in and find out what 25% is and that's how many soldiers would be living in your city. With that many troops compared to how many civilians or uh, Bostonians at the time, redcoats were on the streets at checkpoints, in shops, in taverns, on the docks, in town, out of town, on the outskirts. I mean, everywhere. And there was very few places that you could go and not see or even run into a British soldier or a redcoat. Somebody had asked why they were called redcoats. Um, well, the obvious reason is their uniform or the coat they wore was red. But why were they red? One, you could easily tell who was on your side and who was not and who was your enemy. And the biggest reason, I'm guessing, was that red dye at the time was by far the cheapest color to, to, to dye your cloth, your clothes with. So if the sheer number of soldiers weren't enough to upset the Bostonians, imagine now that the soldiers started to compete for part-time jobs when they were off duty. Uh, jobs in Boston at the time were very scarce, and so when a soldier got the job, through bribes and in some instances force, it just added more fuel to the fire that was burning pretty brightly already. Why on earth would a soldier take a part-time job? Keep in mind, these British soldiers were young, and many were very poor, and basically they wanted to supplement their incomes. Now, the colonists' view of the average British soldier varied from resentment to pity. However, while on duty, an almost guerrilla war type mentality seemed to rage between the soldiers and the colonists. Colonists felt uneasy almost all of the time. They could not go anywhere without running into a soldier. Jobs were being taken by the soldier. And the soldiers monitored and watched civilians all the time. Harassing them took place. Now, let's be fair. Soldiers harass civilians, but equally the civilians harass the soldiers. Either way, it was a perfect storm right it was it was a recipe for disaster and a major travesty did take place on february 22nd in 1770 on this date an 11 or 12 year old boy his name was christopher cedar he was shot and killed and you could accurately say that this boy was the first american killed in the revolutionary war Certainly a sad way to start. The boy's death escalated tensions and resulted in the most well-known and tragic action known as, you guessed it, the Boston Massacre, which actually took place 11 days after the boy was killed. Our next show is actually going to cover the Boston Massacre in great detail, so I, I don't think you're going to want to miss that one. This young boy, Cedar, was a son of a poor German immigrant, and very little is known about him. 
What we do know is Cedar joined a crowd outside the house of Ebenezer Richardson. Ebenezer Richardson was a loyalist and he also was a customs service employee who had tried to disperse a protest in front of the shop of another loyalist. That loyalist was Theopolis Lilly. You never see a name like that uh, these days. Theopolis Lilly. Now, this crowd drove Richardson from his place of business back to his home and the taunting and damage continued and I would say even increased. This crowd threw stones that broke Richardson's home windows and struck his wife. George Wilmont was a guy who came with Richardson back to his home to kind of help him in his defense. They both armed themselves with muskets and accosted the boys who had entered Richardson's backyard. So you have a lot going on. People throwing stuff from the front, yelling, screaming, breaking windows. Now they're in your backyard. Well, Richardson fired a gun into the crowd at random, and one of them hit Christopher Cedar, and he died. He died that night. One account said that um, his heart and his arm were hit, and another account said his eye and his heart uh, were hit by the bullets. But either way, uh, and sadly, he died later on that evening. That's usually where the story ends for Richardson. I kind of wanted to know more about what happened to him, his family, and what he was like. And I also tried to put myself in his shoes and ponder what I would have done in the same circumstance. So picture this. You observe an unruly crowd outside of your business, yelling, taunting, throwing bricks, rocks, and then it got so bad that they force you to leave your business and you go home. So you get home and this continues. And let's say one of these bricks came through and hit your wife or husband or loved one. What what would you do? In my opinion, I think shooting into a crowd was definitely not a smart or justified response, but he certainly did have the right to protect himself and his family. He clearly made a rash and quick decision and did so from a place of fear or anger, which generally doesn't yield good results, but still. Hindsight is always more clear, isn't it? Digging a little bit further led me to the papers of John Adams. <laughs> Everything seems to always lead me back to John Adams' papers. But what I found there paints a more detailed picture, and it gave me a better sense of who Ebenezer Richardson was. This, from John Adams' papers, says, Ebenezer Richardson was born in Woburn in 1718. He married a Woburn woman, and sometime thereafter came to Boston. There he was at least a reputed member of the customs establishment and collectively disliked. Although the customs commissions were later to deny that he ever had been a customs officer, Richardson had for many years before 1770 been known by the name of the Informer, according to the Boston Gazette. So you have a paper mentioning what he did for a living and him being an informer. Um, chances are pretty high that he worked for the Customs Commissions, and as you'll hear later on, it'll probably confirm that even more. 
But John Adams, even in later times, expresses disgust against Richardson. John Adams said, If there was even a color of justice in public opinion, he was the most abandoned wretch in America. Adultery, incest, and perjury were reputed to be his ordinary crimes. His life would exhibit an atrocious volume. Can you imagine having somebody say that about you? I mean, that's pretty bad. Whatever Richardson's other faults may or may not have been, later events demonstrated quite clearly that he had a very short temper. So he wasn't liked, uh, had a short temper. Um, so maybe that leads a little bit on why he decided to shoot into the crowd. Although... I feel he had the right to defend himself to a point, right? What are your thoughts? What, what do you what do you think? Did he have the right to do that? I'm going to talk now about the funeral for Christopher, but first let's talk about what happened with Richardson. So trial was supposed to begin on March 23rd, but it was delayed a month to gather witnesses and also try to provide a lawyer for Richardson. Uh, it might have been delayed also to try and cool down the temper of the city, who was much involved in the case. Everybody was talking about this. It was the news. Um, he was charged with murder, even though the judge told the jury that he was not guilty of anything greater than manslaughter. The trial took place on April 20th. Well, it, it tried to a month later. But the attorney that was ordered to defend Richards... Uh, his name was Samuel Fitch, he didn't show up. Apparently he was homesick. Um, they tried another date and he didn't show up again. I guess he didn't want to try and defend somebody that was guilty in the eyes of the city and trying to get someone a lesser sentence than public opinion wanted might not really bode well for him. Then again, maybe he really was sick all those times. I guess we'll never know. There were many people that filled the courtroom, and there were so many, in fact, that there were complaints of pickpocketing afterwards. Judge Oliver called this audience a vast concourse of rabble. At the close of both sides, vying for favor from the jury, and having all witnesses and evidence presented, the jurors went into a private room to deliberate at 11 p.m., so they go in late, late at night, almost midnight. Now, typically, back in those days, the, the defendants were supposed to be taken back to jail, but the judges had heard that some spectators had brought a halter ready at the door of the courtroom to hang Richardson. And also the rules of the time prohibited the jury to have any food, drink, or even sleep. Now, this was supposed to encourage a jury to find a resolution or decision faster. Can you imagine if that happened today? How many lawsuits would there be because they don't have their food or drink or sleep? Uh, but at any rate, that was the way it was back then. The jury deliberated throughout the entire night. And reading through the court transcripts and the notes, uh, the jury had quickly decided that Wilmot, the other guy that came to help Richardson, he was innocent. So they figured that out rather, rather quick in their deliberation. The following morning, about 8 or 9 a.m., they did come back with a verdict for Richardson. 
and Judge Lind read the verdict out loud. Guilty of murder. Ironically, had the shooting taken place after dark, Richardson, under British law, had every right to shoot anyone that's breaking into his home if it was dark. But since this shooting took place in the day, the waters were quite muddied, as well as the tensions were already at an all-time high. In March of 1772, the court believed that the jurors were ignorant about the case and then sent the final decision of punishment to the king. So they said, hey, we don't think the jury was smart enough to figure this out. We've been trying to come up with the punishment phase and nobody can do it. So you know what? We're going to give the final decision of this guy's life to the king. Well, the king gave him a pardon. After all the turmoil, trial, riots, everything that went on, and let's not forget the most important, the loss of life of Christopher Cedar, a young boy, he was, he was in short set free. Knowing that this would outrage a vast majority and everybody involved with the case that wanted justice, they hurried Richardson out of town on a ferry where he apparently took up office as a customs officer in Philadelphia. Hmm, maybe he had some previous job experience with that, eh? Um, but once residents heard that all of this had happened, they gathered up and went after him to serve the justice that they felt that he deserved. But Richardson had escaped. Going back a little bit to the mob or crowd, I wondered why an 11-year-old boy... Some accounts say he wasn't quite 11, some say he was 12, but nonetheless, why would a young boy be outside wandering the streets, let alone being involved with a crowd outside of a business? Well, that required more research, and I found that the day he was shot was a Thursday, happened to also be and fall on a school holiday. So with no school, there were many, many idle boys out and about that day. The witnesses at the trial varied in their estimates of how many boys there were. One said as few as 60, and other witnesses said that there was many as 300. I have no idea how many there were, um, but even if it was on the low end, 60 boys, that, that's a lot, and they definitely caused some damage. Now, after all of this, Sam Adams and the other Sons of Liberty organized the largest funeral ever seen in Massachusetts. And mourners followed Cedar's casket through the town to the Liberty Tree before burial. The Boston Evening Post printed the general sympathy and concern for the murder of the lad by infamous Richardson on the 22nd will be a sufficient reason for you notifying the public that he was be that he was be buried from his father's house in Frog Lane opposite of the Liberty Tree on Monday next when all the friends of liberty may have an opportunity of paying their last respects to the remains of this little hero and first martyr to the noble cause the Boston Gazette also printed it is said that the funeral of the young victim this afternoon at four o'clock will be attended by as numerous a train as ever was known here. 
It is hoped that none will be in the procession but the friends of liberty, and then undoubtedly all will be hardy mourners. The sons of liberty who guarded the liberty tree, they had affixed a board to its trunk with more quotations. Thou shalt take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer. He shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not pass unpunished. Proverbs 16. And the memory of the just is blessed. Proverbs 10. It was certainly a very sad ordeal, no matter what angle you look at it from. A young boy was killed, a town was uh, beyond angry, and right or wrong, the killer was pardoned. This event would likely have been considered, I think, the turning point or the pinnacle that decided 100% of the colonists was, was going to fight against England and they, and they were going to give every ounce that they had to push back, every chance they had. This was definitely the start of it. But instead, it's often forgotten that 11 days after this boy was shot and killed, the event that took its place in history happened, and that was, as I mentioned before, the Boston Massacre. This show seemed to take a lot more time to put together, likely due to obtaining the trial details and reading the transcripts. The transcripts, And also, there were so many conflicting reports of what actually happened at Ebenezer's home. I had to piece together several dif different sources, and lots of the sources are obscure and hard to find, but when I did find them, uh, a lot of times it's not on the surface, so the different layers had to be peeled back. And, and I love that part. It's like when my wife and I owned uh, our private investigation firm. Lots of digging, lots of collecting information, and then putting all of these pieces together so it becomes a complete picture and makes sense. The downside to it, for my listeners, is it sometimes isn't quick and it takes me more time to do. But with that said, I'm, I'm doing my best to get a show out more often than, than, than the distance between the first, second, and third episode, which was quite a while. But on a positive note, this show was put out less than two weeks from my last episode, so at least it's heading in the right direction. And I hope that you share this show with others that might be interested in learning about the revolution. My goal with this show, as I've said all along, is to help educate both young and old in the facts, the truth, uh, the history, uh, the people that we know about, the many people that we don't, and share that knowledge because it's important to know how this country was formed and who was behind it. And there's just so many stories and, and people that were involved and it affected so many more people than just the founding fathers and the army. Um, and we'll get into many, many more stories like that. But if you, because it takes me so long and I'm not trying to get, you know, I'm not trying to support my family with this podcast. I do it out of um, love and uh, it's something that I'm passionate about. However, I did have somebody ask if how they could support my show. I have a pretty cool way for you to do this if that is something that you're interested in. No, I'm not asking you to send me money. Although if you care to donate money, you certainly can. But I'm excited to announce on this show that we have just launched our Patriot Power online store. Pretty jacked about this. It's something that I've wanted to do for some time and for a variety of different reasons. It's just been delayed. 
Uh, but now it is up and running, does not have a zillion products just yet. Um, we're going to be adding more and more slowly. But we do have a few items uh, available right now. And new ones are going to be added often. So I think what I want to do is focus on t-shirts and mugs right now. Uh, they're going to be complete with founding father quotes, American Revolution, and patriotic themed items. The cool thing is uh, if you have a favorite quote or a favorite person from the revolution that you'd like to see on a product, all you have to do is email me and guess what? I'm going to get it added for you. You can reach me directly at patriotpowerpodcast at gmail.com. And periodically, we are going to have contests that will be announced during future shows where maybe you can win something from our store for free. You can find our store on our website, which is patriotpowerpodcast.com, and click the shop button. I also publish an article under the broadside page for every show that includes a short synopsis and maybe photos relating to that show. We started doing that... Um, about three or four episodes ago, um, but see, people seem to have uh, responded well to that, so I'll continue doing that. I really hope that you tune in to our next episode, as I'm going to be talking about the Boston Massacre. Many people think that the Boston Massacre is, well, British soldiers shot and killed five people, and it ticked everybody off and it started the war. Although that is true, there is so much more to it than that, so be sure to subscribe to my podcast and the newsletter that's from our website so you're notified when it and all future episodes are available to you. As always, check out our show notes and uh, hope that you enjoyed this show and look forward to having you on our next one where we discuss the Boston Massacre. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.